Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare technology and consumerism is changing the way we look at healthcare and the healthcare system. And in this episode, we'll be discussing how the delivery of care is changing, moving out of the hospital and doctor's office and into our homes and on our smart devices. Innovation is occurring at a rapid pace, uh, like with telehealth, which was a great benefit during the pandemic, as well as we're seeing new entrants like Amazon, which are trying to disrupt the status quo. And perhaps central to this is the role of technology in this transformation. And to help explore this and more, I'm pleased to be joined by Ken Eller. With over three decades of of experience in healthcare, his career in healthcare is focused on using data, analytics, and a longitudinal understanding of disease to build products and businesses to improve the healthcare system. This career consists of numerous leadership positions and entrepreneurial endeavors, including serving until recently as United Health Group's Chief Scientific Officer. Ken, great to have you. Thanks, Charles. Good to be here. So, you know, I, I want to start off, you know, if we look at digital health uh, in particular, I guess, you know, over the fa- uh, past five plus years, we, we've seen an explosion in funding, you know, for these type of companies. And, you know, according to Rock Health, over $29 billion was raised in funding for digital health startups in 2021, and that was up from $14.7 billion in 2020. And that's a huge jump, uh, considering that in 2017, only $6 billion was raised. And even in this year, you know, where the markets have been challenging, you know, we've seen over $12 billion raised through the third quarter. Uh, you know, so, you know, maybe first I want to get your thoughts. What do you make of these figures? I mean, the first obvious one is they're big. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think when you look at it, uh, part of it is, is there's a there's a question in there of so what is it that we actually call digital health? So that includes everything from companies that are providing pop health things to uh, companies that are selling technology or services to automate different parts of the process. And, you know, if I was to divide digital health into two different really high level categories, Uh, One being things that are now digital that improve the administrative pieces of health and then other parts of health, which are things that are digital that are actually targeted at the outcome of health and put it into those two different buckets. Most of those investments fit into that first bucket, improvements of administrative efficiency in some part of the system. So when I When I look at the dollar amounts that are going in there right now, one interpretation could be is there's a perception amongst investors that there's an enormous amount of administrative inefficiency in the healthcare system. And I I guess I would say I I actually agree with uh, that particular hypothesis. And if there's a number of inefficient things that are out there, there's probably a fair number of investable hypotheses that are available to investors today. You, you talked about the admin side of it. If this is driving the increased investments, you know, are, are you seeing that that any of this is really making a difference? You know, maybe starting with the admin side, uh, what yeah. you've seen so far, and um, and then maybe let's touch on the second part too. 
Uh, yeah, I think there's a number of things that make a difference on, on the efficiency side of health. Uh, and, and there's probably reasons to think about why somebody, uh, why some of those things make a difference. We can get into that in just a second. On the other side, if you're saying, are there very many things that have made a meaningful impact against outcome? The answer is, is I think we're in a very nascent stage on the outcome side of things right now. So taking that, take that first bucket. A lot of people don't even really think about it anymore. There was a time where a provider network was actually a directory, like a phone directory that we sent out. You know, that got sent out to people to your home when you signed up for your insurance and, and a book arrived. And it was out of date the moment it got there. And the consequence of that would be is an enormous number of phone calls that go into a call center to say, is this doctor in network? What doctor can I go to? Um, what should I expect when I get there? So you know, you look at things there and there's a there's pretty obvious gains that have been had there around like I, I know for myself, um, but I, others would be in this category too. When was the last time you actually called to see if somebody was in network? You just went onto an app or onto a website to actually figure those things out. When was the last time you checked to see if a claim was actually processed? Um, those parts of health, uh, I think there's been some tremendous gains that have actually come in those areas. On the outcome side, though, just to keep it simple there is, you know, there are areas that have made a difference. Uh, for example, take take a Fitbit, for example. Nobody debates whether or not walking is good for you and makes a difference. So from that outcome perspective, we like that. But when I look at and say, you know, has the system figured out how to institutionalize the idea and to actually, you know, propagate the idea of walking in ways that are uh, meaningful to, you know, to patients that are actually in there. I think, I think the outcome on that has actually been, you know, pretty mild at best. And I think, you know, uh, as we got to kind of go forward with this, I think we're probably going to focus a little bit more on the outcome because I think that's where the, you know, sort of the real opportunity and certainly a lot of where a lot of companies in this space, you know, are, are, are making claims where they can really affect outcomes. And, you know, so maybe let's approach it from a, a few areas and maybe to start, want to kind of look at it from the consumer patient viewpoint, uh, from the payer's viewpoint. And then the and then find you know the providers viewpoint as well. Obviously, these overlap with each other, and uh, certainly you know as you as you discuss it, you know feel free to jump back and forth. Sure. Uh, but I think this may be kind of kind of help as we kind of go along. You know, starting with the consumer patient, you know, you know a lot of what I see in this space, particularly those, uh, particularly our companies that are focused on consumers, is you know that it's offering some type of app. That a person uses, you know, to measure, keep track of something, like you're talking about with the Fitbit, you mm-hmm. know, and then kind of adds onto that some type of service, either automated or or live, uh, you know, coaching to help improve, you know, some type of outcome here. You know, to me, it seems like it asks a lot of the consumer. Um, and I want to get your thoughts here. You know, are, are these, you know, do you find that these kind of tools, you know, really are that helpful? Um. I think there are use cases where they are helpful. Uh, what you just said, though, is something that really resonates. We ask a lot of a consumer in the process. Um, there are consumers that are really into the quantified self type movements. Um, I'm interested in staying healthy for as long as I can. And so there are things, a set of things that I would do in my life to actually uh, have a meaningful 
sort of uh, change in trajectory of my own health. A little bit different, though, from what about a person that's not into that? Um, that's not part of their core mindset. Um, they don't track things. They don't look at things on a daily basis. So when I'm in that state, now I'm looking at it and saying, is there a, you know, what do I need to do to convince the consumer that this is more important to them than all the other things that are competing for their time? In that area there, we're probably asking too much of a consumer. You're asking them to make a meaningful difference in how they allocate their time. And we would likely need to move to a much more passive approach in terms of how do we collect? How do we actually do things? You know, and then the second piece is that you talked about there is, you know, you get something, you do it, and and it's easy to think about wearables in this case. Um, but I think there are other areas that are meaningful. But the the, uh, the idea of a wearable um, and we want somebody to track and do something, the reality is most of us are creatures of habit. We do the same things day after day after day, and that's part of what becomes uninteresting about tracking my steps, for example. Um, so when I'm on the 57th day of getting exactly 11 point, you know, 11,252 steps, plus or minus 10%, it's not very exciting on day 53 and day 54 and day 55. Um, and so the engagement of it itself actually falls down. In, in that case there, there probably is a different approach that needs to be taken with the consumer to actually drive the fundamental engagement that's necessary. But I don't think we should limit the definition of digital health to things that are wearable. Um, there's probably a lot more ways that we can think about, you know, digital health in general. When, you know, just sticking with wearables for a second, though, what, you know, we, we see, like, what about like CGM in this case, right? It's it's passive collection of data. Does that change, do you think, the the dynamics of the consumer? They just have to put it on. You know, they, they don't have to do as much, perhaps, but it allows them to, you know, see in real time, you know, the effects of what they're doing. Uh, on their on their blood sugar. Yeah, you know, CGM is is a great example of of digital health that has actually improved outcome uh, for the actual patient. Uh, now, there's different issues as it relates to payers and as it relates to the providers, that, you know, around CGM, and and we could talk about that for a minute. But for the patient itself, you you look at what what is accomplished there. A patient armed with CGM and their insulin, whether it's on a pump or whether it's multiple daily injections, that patient today can probably do a better job managing their own health than they were doing before with the endocrinologist and a set of finger pricks. There are lots and lots of stories that you could put your hands around where there is a patient that they get their CGM, they have access, they're, you know, if they're a type two patient and they're on insulin, they're reducing the amount of insulin that they need to take because they've gotten way better at the decision process that needs to go with that health. So they're actually getting, and, and they are actually getting an improved outcome as a consequence. That technology was originally built for type one patients. Um, and it's been now looked at and used with type two patients in different areas. But that's a good example of you know, we should be asking the question of where else could the patient actually do something different? And there's a key, I think there's a really key question in there, which is that type one patient who's on insulin needs to change their behavior in some way. And CGM allows them to do just that. So the question that you would apply then is say, where does CGM, 
what other behaviors could CGM or something like it change a core um, behavior that needs to happen in there? There are a number of examples where you could do that. The CGM is not the only example, though. You could take another one, uh, um, as long as you went with something that's popular and relatively well-known. I mean, take an example like a Cologuard. We don't often talk about Cologuard as a digital health example, but maybe it is. You don't need to go into a doctor to get it done. You you do need to get a prescription to have that thing. You know, there's an order that takes place. The test is done at home. It's processed in the central lab. It's data that gets generated. That data needs to be used in some way or another. And, and now it gets communicated back. And in that process, uh, there's a couple of things that are notable that can come out. One is an indication as to whether or not you actually need a colonoscopy um, to investigate whether or not you have maybe early stage disease. Um, that's one. Another one is, is you've you've obviated the need to actually go into part of the system uh, today to get a procedure that you didn't need to have done before. I think that's a that's another example of you know digital medicine that is advancing the outcome itself. Right. If we think about digital health kind of broadly, we're, what we're saying is we can escape from the traditional infrastructure of healthcare. Right, we can get care delivered differently, and in the Kohler example, right, it's at home, and uh, and a lot of what we're talking about is sort of an on-demand kind of service. You you touch on this point about this at-home testing, you know, opportunity as well, uh, which really kind of centers around the consumer. The consumer kind of can choose uh, to kind of take these tests now at home. Is that the type of engagement though that that is actually kind of a Persistent, I guess. It's, it, it's enduring because, you know, people see a benefit uh, from, you know, taking such a test or, you know, so I, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, Q Health, for example, right? They, they have, or, and, or Everlywell, right? These, mm-hmm. these companies that are offering now sort of a, a whole host of at-home tests, whether it's COVID tests or, you know, sort of other at-home tests that people can use. You send it, yeah, it does get processed in the lab or, the health, uh, in the case of Q, gets processed in their device, you know, the device that you're holding at home. But either way, right, that data is then generated. Uh, you get it in a in a in sort of an interface through an app, uh, and then allows you to to make a decision. Um, is that is this kind of where is is that how you kind of can drive real engagement versus you know something where you uh, you know you, you talk about the Fitbit and, and and taking steps? Yeah. Okay. So when you think about health, you know. Health is, everybody likes it from an investment perspective. It's a huge part of the economy. And we think about it that way. 20% of the economy, almost rough figures, but it's only 20% of the economy. Like you, me, and uh, my parents, they don't spend, they don't spend 100% of their time thinking about health. They, they don't. We, we spend our time thinking about a lot of other things, um, our social connections, who, who are we engaging with, how we shop, all those types of things that are not health. And so when we try to apply the model and say, you know, somebody wants to keep in contact with all of their friends on a daily basis and see what's happening, should we get the same level of engagement um, out of a patient that a media company gets out of a of a consumer that's demanding entertainment in some way or another? That might be an unrealistic expectation to think. In fact, actually, if it's a patient that is that engaged, then we'd probably go next to what is the, just 
how sick are they that they need to be that engaged in their health? Maybe a, a way of, of thinking about engagement might be, you know, when the time to engage with the system is now, is there a compelling enough uh, value proposition for the consumer to say, I want to engage in this way? Do I know about it? And and I and I want to consume this way. And there are things there that maybe could be done more at home. Um, so there's a the FDA said with Cologuard, I'll use that one as an example. Uh, every three years, uh, that looks like a colonoscopy at once every ten years. Probably a good idea to engage every three years. Colon cancer tends to be a slower growing cancer. There are risk factors associated with it. Testing somebody every three years is probably a good idea, um, leaving reimbursement out for just a second. But what would happen if you tested um, every year or every other year or every six months? Um, are there things that we could learn in that process or would we would we overwhelm the system by doing some of those types of activities? The question on that, though, becomes how easy is it to actually do that test and to engage when it's time to engage? If engage means I have to go set up an appointment. I have to go see a specialist. I have to work through and navigate a tricky schedule, mine or somebody else's. Engagement actually becomes hard. But if it's something that is part of a routine at home, that's not very hard. Your point on CGM, I think, is a good one. If you're a type 1 patient and you're making insulin decisions throughout the day, that's a great technology to engage on. It doesn't just cause you to engage when you take insulin. It actually causes you to engage every time you want to look at the number because you just ate something or whatever it might be. And so there's there's a number of feedback loops that have been created there. You asked about Everly Well or Q or th those types of things. On those, it would be the, what's the type of patient that we're actually talking about? Most of our system, if not nearly all of the health system is built for when we are sick. It's a sick system. Um, that's something that lots of people have talked about over the years. Um, we could think about what does a sick system mean a little bit differently and say, either we're dealing with the progression of your disease or we're dealing with the consequence of your disease. Um, one seeks to get in front of what is going to come next from a health perspective. The other is dealing with mitigating the consequences of what just happened. Um, you know, in that perspective, when I'm when I'm worried about your heart. If I'm worried about progression, I'm thinking about what might happen tomorrow, next week, or next month, or next year. If I'm worried about consequences, I wait until you show up at the ER. Now, are there patients that we could say, hey, it makes sense to track the following things so that we can be in front of? There definitely are. But there are questions in there that impact, you said up front, the consumer, the, consumer, the provider, and the, and the payer. There are questions that are in there that says, how do we get alignment across that? An easy example, stage one chronic kidney disease. What do we do about that? The answer is, is the system doesn't do a whole lot about it. You know, is there a drug that's indicated for a therapy that's indicated for stage one disease? No, not, not really. There are some things that we might say, well, they have some hypertension. We should work with that. When we know that it's not just hypertension, but generally the combination of diabetes and hypertension together that causes somebody to progress down that track relatively quickly, then we might say, well, if I have a stage one patient that has prediabetes, now what do I do with them? Is there some engagement that needs to happen at home? There's a really big problem, which is we don't, at least in this country, we don't have a prediabetes stage one kidney disease intervention that's gone through the FDA 
So there's nothing in the drop-down list, if you're the doctor, to actually do. So there's the fallback, which is which everybody knows. We need to tell this patient to eat better, sleep better, exercise more, and we'll see you in six months. Um, the, there might be ways in there that we could talk about how do we engage digitally in between those things. You know, you you touched on that, like for diabetes, though. I mean, obviously, we have companies like Better Therapeutics, for mm -hmm. example, right, that are is trying to, uh, who is going to the FDA, right, to create a product that a doctor could prescribe that in theory would be able to coach them through better nutrition, better exercise to, to manage their diabetes, uh, you know, using sort of cognitive, cognitive, you know, basically psychotherapy, you know, embedded into an app here. Is that something, though, that you think can be engaging for consumers or like, you know, because I, I get back to your earlier point, which is, you know, you, you kind of said that, you know, we don't think about our health most of the time. And I, and I completely agree, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with our everyday lives and, you know, our, our kids and work. Uh, and it's only when we don't feel well, then we start thinking about our health. And it kind of gets to this idea, I think, you know, ultimately, what, what is the responsibility of us as consumers and actually potential patients uh, in taking care of our health? Uh, and what, and I, I'm saying that in, in the context of to the broader healthcare system itself. Yeah, that's um that's a good question, which is there's a lot of different perspectives on that one, Charles, as to who owns the responsibility for somebody's health. I would take a perspective that the patient has a huge responsibility for their own health all the way through, right up until if you're in the hospital, you have you have a job to do there. Now there are some there are some problems that come with that. You know, the number of people who have been educated on even what are the right questions to ask is, is that's a pretty small number. Uh, most of us, the education we have on what question we should ask is ask your doctor if this is right for you, um, and that's the limit of what we what we know. Um, we don't know to ask. Um, here's an easy one that. Patients should have been asking over the last two years a lot. I'm overweight and I just had COVID. I have not had my, my kidney function tested um, in the last few years. Um, is Should I be getting that done right now? But your average primary care doctor has not run that test. There wasn't a reason to. Maybe you're in your mid-40s and we don't really think about that then. And yet, for those that have run that test, there's... There's a real problem that's sort of brewing out there, which is this This seemed to be pretty hard on people. The question of like, what are the right questions that people should be asking? How should they engage? How much of their own energy should they exert in the process is a real one. Now, we, we, can, we can make that easier for people to do. There are some structural things that we could cause to get a lot easier to say, you know, how do I make the patient more engaged in this? But that requires a pretty big shift in our thinking. If you think about other markets, there's a lot of talk a few years back about web 1.0 and then web 2.0, right? Web 2.0 was the user started to generate content. In the media industry, prior to things like YouTube and then years later, Instagram, Facebook, things like that, Media was generated in a centralized way and then disseminated out to the population to consume. And then along comes a thing called YouTube. And all of a sudden now, individual users are generating the content itself that they're also consuming. 
And that's a that's a monumental shift. Um, and that happened in market after market. One of the questions maybe we should be asking is, is what does health 2.0 look like along the same lines? What does user-generated health look like or patient-generated health look like? You know, are patients, are we comfortable that patients have an ability to generate their own diagnostic plans, for example? The first response that probably many of us would have is we'd say, oh my gosh, we're not comfortable with that at all. Really? Go go look at Facebook groups and see just how many patients are actually advising each other on what to do next in their disease state. Go look at sites like Patients Like Me or, you know, there's a number of areas out there. But we haven't really embraced that idea. So the idea that, you know, patients need to be in charge of something is a little bit farther out there for us to be considering. And and there's there's ideas that we need to consider between here and there. You know, what are the tools that actually they would need to be able to pull that off? And again, I'm not saying we should institutionalize the idea of patient-generated health, but if there is a health 2.0, it probably includes that. And that means that maybe the patient has a much larger role in the actual generation of their health plan going forward. When I think of when you're talking about patient-generated health, it, it makes me think of, um, to your point, right? You know, there's a lot of these support groups for people that are, who do have conditions and known conditions. You know, I, I don't know if you know that company, Evidation Health, right? It's, it seems like you can get people to contribute their information in, in a community. You know, is, is that kind of the model then? I'm just trying to think through what, you're, what you've said here because I like this idea of patient-generated health. Because ultimately, right, then if we are contributing our information or generating our information, and, and maybe this is where we talked about before, right, uh, something beyond CGM that can, you know, collect, you know, other, you know, information, maybe our cholesterol on a continuous basis, our uh, cortisol on a continuous basis, you know, any number of things, I guess, right? In a, in a passive way, perhaps, is is that probably a way we can all then be more engaged because we're constantly generating data. It maybe is contributing into a larger data set. Um, but then I guess the, the question is, who, who is, who is, what is that data being used for? <laughs> and who, and who is, who has access in using it? Well, that's a really, that's, yes, yeah, so I think you hit on some of the key issues there. Who does get to use that then? And what do they do with it? And who, um, and then a question that we should be asking, which is, and who gets the profit from that? Does some does a company get to gather that all together and then go sell rights to it? For example, uh, in my own case, I would be a, I would be opposed to that um, unless unless I had explicitly said you can take my data and go make money with it. Now, I might have an extreme view on that, but you know there are a number of others who would feel that way. There's others that feel like, well, once the data has been pulled together, if we do something with it, it's up to us. We can decide if we want to sell it to somebody else. But I think you're you are touching on the issues there that actually matters. For example, uh, let's go back to one that we talked about before. Uh, we'll use a couple of them. Um, the the Colaguard example. What would happen if users started to generate their or push their data back into a spot and say, you know, use this to improve the Colaguard algorithm itself? There are there are tricky questions about who owns what there, but improving the algorithm means what? If you're trying to create a Cologuard to replace a colonoscopy, your algorithm might look one direction from a sensitivity and specificity perspective. 
But if the algorithm was said, I just want to see if you need a colonoscopy, well, now we can think about false negatives and false positives maybe a little bit differently. And that user content might actually improve that quite a bit. Um, now, there are vested interests that are out there in the industry. Maybe maybe if my my job is doing screening colonoscopies, I might not like that very well. Or if my job is, you know, I, I run a Medicare plan um, and we have a we have a process in place today for, you know, colonoscopy every 10 years. And there's stars and other things associated with that. But maybe, maybe that gets a little bit disruptive in how I need to think. But from a patient perspective, would that get me to a better outcome? I eliminate colonoscopies when I don't need it and I get it only when I do need it. And it's highly likely to progress to an actual diagnostic colonoscopy that has therapeutic benefit as well. Um, that's a that's a pretty potent way to start thinking about health. There are other measures that are out there though. And I think you could do this along a, a lot of different angles. Um, whether it's certain proteins that are floating around, maybe we should think about mRNA tests. Uh, maybe there's some genetic information. Patients like me is built around, originally built around rare disease and contributing back in. It, you know, there are pieces there that are super helpful to the community as a whole. You could get to other areas too, but you know, you used CGM as an example. That has something that behaviors are attached to it. So the engagement piece would be there. Cortisol is interesting, but cortisol has some other features with it. It, it. You know, we trigger cortisol for a lot of different reasons. You know, do you track it? Well, does that mean that you're under high stress? Does it mean that you're sick? There's a lot of things that that could mean. Is that important to track it? I think there's some questions that are there that are open. There, there might be other, you know, signals that you need to look for that you could actually enhance. And, and most likely, Charles, it's the combination of signals that actually get you the answer you need. So if you look at Q and the technology that they have, sort of feel like I'm doing commercial. I have no vested interest in any of those organizations. <laughs> but if you look at Q and the technology that they have and what they can put into your home, there are some really interesting things that you could do, especially with certain subclasses of patients. And how that gets generated and aggregated together would actually be really helpful. Um, Think about what that means when you move from a test that has 30 or 40 or 50 patients into it, into a data set that has tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions in it. Um, your ability to improve care for those patients would be, you know, astronomical. Yeah. And, you know, when we think about who benefits, right, maybe we can segue here and maybe look at it from the payer point of view, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it seems to me that, you know, you know the payer, it has a great incentive uh, to invest in in digital here because you can, you know, potentially intervene earlier, more often, and you know, potentially in a, a lower cost way, uh, and, and you know, uh, possibly avoid more expensive care later. And and I think we've already seen you know, large payers kind of dip their toes in a little bit, right? I think the you know, bought MD Live, uh, you know, United bought Rally Health uh, a number of years back, among other things. And uh, does that make sense? You know strategically from the pair point of view? Well, it does. It does and it does not. There, There's some pieces there to, you know, payer finance that are probably important uh, to understand if if you're making, if you're looking at companies in the space. So so if you think about it, on all my comments, 
I believe that people are well-intentioned when they put, whether it's rules, regulations, laws, whatever else in place. And there's good reasons for some of these things, but they, a lot of them have different perverse consequences that come with it. So, so think about one that sits out there uh, in the payer world. If you're, again, that numbers are going to be, I'm just going to do simple estimates on this. If you have a, a minimum loss ratio of 80%, meaning you need to spend 80% of the premiums that you collect on medical expenses. That has a really well-intended reason that that's in place. Um, we don't want payers, we don't want insurance companies to be able to underwrite out everybody that has high risk um, because we've made a decision as a society that we want people to be able to access care. Um, so not debating that issue at all. We put a rule in place, though, that says you need to spend 80% of of the dollars onto um, actual medical expense itself. So here's where here's where the rub comes in. Above eighty percent, there's administrative costs and you know uh, distribution costs, a number of different things that are there. Anything that comes above that line, the payer has tremendous incentive. And so when I said administrative efficiency earlier, the payer has tremendous incentive to invest into things. Every phone call you could reduce. That's actually worth something. You can put a dollar figure to that and say, I can make that a good, that's a good answer from an economic perspective. You could also probably make the experience a lot better in the process too. But look what happens when you start to spend on dollars that come underneath that line. If I actually reduce you from 80% to 78% from a loss ratio perspective. So I reduce the total medical spend that you might have. If I'm right at that threshold, every dollar that I reduce, actually, I, I that dollar doesn't belong to me anymore. So actually the return that you can get just got way smaller. And so a payer is going to look at that and say, well, actually it's only 20 cents on the dollar now that I actually get to keep there. So if I had to spend 20 cents to get 20 cents, now, all of a sudden, maybe the math doesn't work quite as well anymore. If I'm on the other side of that 80% threshold, say I'm at I'm at 84%, and I can look at it and say, wow, you know, could I move an ER visit to a televisit and radically reduce the cost of care in some way there? Because, you know, the patient, maybe, maybe the patient has... Uh, heartburn, but they think they have a heart issue because they're in their mid fifties and maybe they want to run in, but all it takes is, you know, five seconds with a, somebody who has some skill to realize now they're probably, they're probably just have, um, you know, a heartburn related issue or something there. That's great. I can invest into that there and actually reduce that out because if I reduce you from, uh, if I reduce the medical spend from 84% to 83%, the payer can actually keep that savings that they actually generate in there. So, so there, what you said is correct. The payer does have an incentive to actually go in and invest into things, but there are limits to where they will make those investments and where they will not. Anything that falls in the efficiency zone where they every dollar they save, they can keep, that's, that's free game. And you, when you look at the acquisitions that they've done, that's where most of them sit um, it, because there's a, there's a defined return that they can actually get there. When it comes to the other side, they do have an incentive, but there are some well-intentioned rules that have been put in place. Another one would be RAF, risk adjustment. Um, risk adjustment makes sense. We want people to actually um, get the right amount of premium for the person that they're getting. But then there's an issue. 
if you're a, um, you use diabetes, but the, if you're a complex diabetic, I know what your RAF looks like. If I actually make you healthier, your RAF actually goes down. So any amount that I spent to make you healthier actually now evaporates. And I need to figure out what that looks like. Um, kidney disease would be the same thing. If I have some, and, and well, actually all chronic diseases would look this way. Chronic diseases are by their very nature progressive um, that follows a very defined biological curve. Anytime I move you back that curve, um, those, those dollars that flow through might belong to somebody else in the process. And so there should be an incentive there, um, but it gets mitigated by how the rural structure looks around it. Uh, are you tracking with how I'm, I walk through that? Yeah. No. You're uh, depressed? <laughs> There's yeah. a solution for depression too. <laughs> well, I, you know, when I when I hear that, it, it kind of, because I, I, I was thinking that the incentives would be around, you know, I was thinking a little bit like stars, right? You know, to get the better patient experience uh, to uh, obviously because, uh, you know, particularly let's say Medicare seniors are, are filling out these surveys and, you know, and they're kind of rating, you know, how, how the care was, uh, how, how they experienced, uh, you know, their, their plan. And, and I would think that, well, if I had greater, better tools to make it more convenient and efficient, but, but it sounds like it's, it becomes more, it's, it's really more mechanical. If I'm already pretty good at uh, managing, you know, the health of my population, I, I it seems like I would already have a, a disincentive to, to really add incrementally more. Whereas if I'm, if I'm not doing it well, right. If I, if I'm below 80% anyways, then there's, yeah. it sounds like there's lo- less incentive for me as a health plan to really invest more. It sounds it's a, like. it's a good way of looking at it. If you are a high functioning health plan and pretty good at managing the, the medical, the clinical risk in your population, when you think about those rule sets, they're done at the averages, right? Um, effectively is how they're done. Um, Cause at the end of the day, whatever you collect from everybody has to be used to be able to pay out for everybody. So one way of looking at it, if, if you're average at that or a little bit better than average, your incentives dissipate really quickly in that process. Um, now there are some ways that you could actually get around that. And, and there are methods there to say, what happens if, if a payer and a provider are both working on the same patient? Well, a payer could, uh, capitate uh, the risk of that patient to the provider for a fixed amount. And then now it's the provider's problem to say, is it because to the payer now, they've already said, okay, I give it, I gave you that life at exactly 80% or whatever the might, the 85%, whatever the number might be. Um, it's now up to the provider to actually figure out how to make that go. And, you know, Charles, not to make this really complicated, but that then gets into what type of provider did you capitate that to? Um, how do their financials run? If it's a hospital-based system, that, for example, that you capitated to, a hospital-based system, their financials revolve around the OR effectively. You know, In order for them to generate additional savings from there, they need to reduce the number of procedures going into their hospital. And you know, there are areas where that would make sense and other areas where it would not make sense. It's interesting uh, because... You know, I, because we, we do see a lot now plans farming off that risk to provider groups, right? I mean, there's a whole slew of companies that have come public over the last couple of years doing just that. And uh, what role then is the health plan doing? Is it just distribution 
marketing, you know, sort of member member services generally, because I, I farmed out the care, yeah. or I, I, I've you know cut that piece out and 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 capitated it to somebody else. You know, what what then is the role of the the help plan? Sure, there there is distribution. And there is basic administrative cost that actually goes there too. Who does the processing and actually adheres to the rules that are there. But I think uh, the way to actually think about what is their role, the health plan runs on a financial risk model. So there are two different types of risk really in health. There's the financial risk and then there's the actual clinical risk associated with the patient. So for example, when a hospital says, well, we don't take on risk, it's like, nah, that's not true. I mean, every day that you have a patient walk into an OR, you're taking a patient's life into their into your hands. You, you do have risk and a lot of it. You just call it something a little bit different because you're familiar with it. Um, doctors are very familiar with the risk that comes with taking care of a patient. The, the health plan still has the financial risk management pieces. So the risk management pieces that come from that are you know, the more lives you have in that, the more efficient you can be at managing that risk. So the risk premium actually shrinks some. That's a probably a longer podcast for a different day as to how that all works. Um, but it's very real. You want to be able to aggregate that across as many people as you possibly can. When we think about financial risk, like for example, if I switch this to car insurance, it's easy to think about a simple an accident or you broke your windshield on your car and that needs to get replaced. And that's how we tend to think about, you know, the real financial risk that sits in car insurance. But if we were to really go through the math, the real risk in car insurance is you got into an accident, you're found liable, and it's actually, you know, this is a $3 million claim that gets done here. The reason we don't think about that is those things are really rare. The same thing happens in health. You know, thankfully, most babies are born under very normal circumstances, and they're they're relatively inexpensive to do. But occasionally, one is born that isn't, and they they might be several million dollars to actually move through that. When you, when you look at the health plan, the insurance company, the payer, whatever you might want to call them, there's this risk aggregation function, and then there's the pieces around that financial risk that you need to manage still. Sadly, there is fraud, waste, and abuse that takes place. Um, there is the right-sizing, the size of the premium to the size of the medical expense that comes with things like risk adjustment or underwriting and those types of things that are there. What gets delegated away is, on average, these patients should cost a number, 85% of the premiums, whatever it might be, that you have delegated away. What you're really saying there is, at the margin, we think there is more resources to be saved. So from an economic perspective, by allowing somebody else to manage now the clinical risk associated with this patient. And that's really what you're capitating away at that point. Yeah, so still doing a very useful function in that, which is um, to help with the financial risk itself. Um, and that's why when you look at it, even on things like risk adjustment that gets done, that actually still comes back to the payer itself working with different clinical organizations to make that work. Yeah. I, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which uh, when we, we talked about a high-performing health plan, it, you know, obviously that maybe has a little bit of a disincentive to, to make that incremental investment. But doesn't that mean, though, they are already probably well-invested in technology to help them achieve that? And maybe from the technology perspective, you know, what, what are the systems that, you know, most health, 
a high performing health plan needs to have. And you know, when we think about in this area, right, um, we're starting to talk about big data, data analytics, AI. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of companies in this, you know, coming around in this space. You know, I guess like a, a Definitive Health or a Clarify Health, where you're you're now taking not only just claims data, right? You're looking at social determinants, health, credit data, all, all these other factors uh, to you know to provide a, a maybe a more robust picture of the patient to have a better sense of risk. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe think about, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, so if I think about a, um, what does a high-performing um, health plan look like? If we went back to that concept that we, I guess we kind of made it up while we were talking, but, you know, what does health 1.0 look like and what does health 2.0 look like? I think a high-performing plan has got a robust set of health 1.0 tools at their disposal. Um they are good at helping to get a patient to the right doctor, or at least what they believe to be the right doctor at the right time. Um, they're good at identifying what does the network need to look like. Um, they they do those types of things that allow them to manage the financial risk and is there. What they're probably not doing right now is there's a fundamental question, which is, is the average cost of these types of patients, is, is the number that they're at today, is that the right number? If it costs us $10,000 to take care of a patient on average, is that really where it should be for this disease type? Or or could it be $7,000 or $6,000 if we engaged in a different way? The incentive isn't there really to look at it from that perspective. That would take a, a different type of health plan to actually you know, say, okay, we, we're going to actually reconsider this in a different way. There are some rules that you could change in the system to actually get closer to it. I mean, here's one, which is instead of recertifying your RAF every year in Medicare, what if you, what if that number became uh, your RAF adjustment? So the HCCs that you got, what if that became stable for three years? I identify you as congestive heart failure. I don't have to recertify you every single year. Well, if I did that, I would instantly have an incentive now to actually invest into you if I really could actually make you actually get better. Right. Um, so there's some of those types of things that are there. So so what would it look like? I think if you're a high performing plan, you probably have a lot of those tools in place. If you're a low performing plan, you're probably looking for a lot of those tools still to actually get that stuff in place. If you're a, a 2.0 version, you're probably looking at and asking questions like, is the medical expense where this is at and the clinical outcomes we're seeing it? Is this what it could be? And what are the things that now we would employ in this process to actually get better? And it's probably some, I feel like I've used the word probably a lot, um, but we're in a probabilistic game here. So I'll keep saying it. It's probably something that includes both the patient and the physician um, in that process of saying, you know, are, is there is there health that can be generated in a new way that we could consume in a different way to actually drop the uh, cost at the same time we're improving the outcome for some of these patients? I don't see a lot of the companies out there right now that are working on those parts of it. I think they're still working against the 1.0 problems for the most part. And when you say that, you, you, you mean payers in this case, or 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 what about new new companies that are emerging trying to address maybe this 2.0 concept. 
Uh, there's a few of them that are there. Um, the one that you used earlier, the round stand, I mean, that, that really, you know, should be um, really built upon and pushed out farther is they, they've got a base and they can actually look at how do they actually take care of people in different ways. There, uh, I'm not seeing a lot that fit into the space right now that are really going after those things. It's harder because uh, you think about it, if you have a service that you're offering you have to go convince a payer or a provider organization to go to the next step and make a bet on the future, um, which, you know, by definition, that future is not here yet. Yeah. You know, maybe it's a good segue because you you're, you start to bring in the provider into this equation here. You know, to me, one area of care delivery that could, you know, really transform or be transformed is uh, from the use of technology is you know, how care is delivered by, uh, you know, by your doctor, um, you know, telehealth is that classic example now, I think, where we've seen that during the pandemic, you didn't necessarily have to go to the doctor's office, but we were also used to that. Um, you know, if we think into the future, then, is there any reason why we have to keep sticking with sort of this, the the status quo of uh, a physical interaction with our physician? Is the future where, and because to this other idea earlier, when we talked about you know, patient-generated health. You know, you know how do, how do you see the role of the physician then changing uh, in, in how care is delivered if we if we move into this kind of you know user-generated model of of data and information? Yeah, that one that was a good question, Charles. I, um, you know, when I think about, we still will need the physicians just as many. We're probably redeploying them against different parts of the problem. Um, maybe not quite so many against the problem of dealing with the consequences of disease and maybe a few more dealing with the um, the progression of disease itself. But that that requires us probably to think differently about, you know, how do those physicians even get compensated for their services? It's, uh, you know, just like when we were talking about payers before, if you limit the payers return to only 20% of what they could possibly generate, that that puts a pretty high bar on the types of things that they can invest into. Um, it's reasonable that they get a return, just like it's reasonable for you, I, or anybody else to expect us to get paid for going to work every day. We might we might wake up in the morning and say, I really want to spend time helping out at a homeless shelter. But then the reality of you have a mortgage and a family and grocery bill and everything else comes due and you say, actually, I kind of need to go to work today. Um that's true in the in the in the provider world as well, you know. So for the physicians that are there, so if we want physicians to play a different role, maybe one of the roles is um, how do we vet some of the user generated content that's there? Maybe it doesn't need to be conversations. Uh, we we've taken, I think this is more of a 1.0 version. The doctor's time is valuable, so maybe we need to hire a whole bunch of coaches to deliver the message to the patient. That still is a hierarchy-driven, top-down approach to how health works. Um, but maybe maybe there's a few physicians that have actually figured out how the world ought to work, um, and and it's uh, you know maybe our in health maybe some of our physicians need to be more of the influencers in health. I'm trying to use words that are known to people out there, right? Um, they're not getting paid by advertising, but maybe. Maybe based on the the patients that they're working with, they can get paid um, a lot better for actually taking better care of people along the way. Um, 
I think there are some steps that are going that direction in terms of how capitation works, but the underlying clinical models that are associated with those are not very robust yet to allow, you know, the primary care physician, for example, to do substantially better and in investing into those patients. Um, at least that's how that's how it works right now. So there's probably a few things that need to change in there, but I think there are some disruptors that will come along and actually make some of that work. What What about the provider groups that are you know, have, you know, employed physicians where, where the physician becomes employed. So they, you know, they, they, they know exactly what they're going to be earning, right? So it's not volume driven, right? You know, I think one of the big critiques of the fee-for-service model here is, you know, if I'm particularly if I'm primary care, what, what am I getting, you know, $60 a visit, uh, you know, to the doctor. And, uh, you know, if I want to generate a real income, I, I turn through as much volume as possible. And, and then obviously that reduces the, the experience, both for the patient and the physician, right? Sure. Um, and, and so you've seen those companies like, you know, a One Medical and, and a few others where you employ the physician and, you know, in theory, right, they can spend more time with you. They're not, you know, they, they, they don't have to see as many patients a day. Does that, does that maybe help solve some of it? Or, you know, what, what could be problems with that? Yeah, I think I think actually it does help solve some of it, um, especially if they don't if they don't have an economic model behind them. It would be harder uh, to back up here if they had an economic model behind them that depended on the procedure actually happening. Um, then that would be a little bit tougher. But if it's an independent organization, um, you know, the One Medicals, Iora was part of that, um, uh, Oak Street. There's there's a number of them that are out there. Um, they certainly do have the incentives actually aligned, at least the, the starting point is aligned the right direction. And and I think there is possibilities there that they can invest into those things and actually move it the right um, the right overall direction. You know, I'd have to think about what, what would they need to do next to actually get further down that track. Um, even in those models, they are still pretty rooted in the one-to-one version of health. Whether I see you in an office or I see you on a telemedicine visit, it's still, you know, Ken and Charles are talking together. I need to do a prescription for you to do the following things. You're talking with me. Um, But for years, we've known that group medical visits, for example, are more effective at getting patients to change different behaviors or engage in different ways. we don't really have a very good model of how we've incorporated group medical visits into the overall scheme. There's pockets here and there, but it's not, it's not like that's a scaled up version that's out there. Yeah. You know, I want to touch on, um, you know, we, we talked earlier about the, the consumer engagement at home, right. And being able to do things at home and, and, you know, what is the, the pushes we're, we're increasingly seeing is, um, you know, pushing other more acute care services into the home, right? They have these movements like hospital at home, skilled nursing at home, et cetera. And, you know, obviously the, the data shows uh, patients do better uh, if they're at home uh, versus in an institution generally. And to me, that seems like a great opportunity for technology to play a role to help health systems, you know, push out beyond their own facilities, you know, into the home setting. You know, I, I guess, you know, two questions really. First, you know, what kind of technologies would a health system need to effectively manage patients you know, outside of their own domain? And, and then secondly, you know, how, how, what does that mean for a health system? You know, what, what does a health system look like? Because it's, you know, historically has been very, you know, facility centric. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's some elements in there 
now I feel like I'm all into the finances and economics of stuff. And maybe at a future point, we can actually like come off of that part. But but I think it's important for, for us to understand as we're talking through it. If you're in a facility-centric environment, um, you think about that, like the OR is what drives sort of revenues and everything else that takes place there. I know there's some other pieces. There's imaging that takes place. There's ICUs. There's those types of things. But effectively, the OR drives sort of what the financials look like. Um, and you look at the environment right now. So people have talked about staff shortages, shortages. But have we really talked about how that works? Um, we haven't. So if a if a facility based system says I don't have enough, I have doctors, but I don't have nurses to keep my OR operating. Now my OR is operating at eighty five percent capacity in a in a two or three percent margin business. That has a material impact on what might you know take place from a financial perspective there. So, you know, could a hospital go out and at the margin acquire more nursing resources? Yes, they could, because it's that valuable at the margin that they that they can make that happen. But then there's another problem that comes downstream, which is where and when do you discharge that patient? Um, you, if you went out and got a nurse and that nurse was in a skilled nursing facility and you brought them in, now you got your OR running, but now you don't have a place to discharge them to that creates a problem for you. And, you know, as you attach reimbursement to that, if the skilled nursing facility has a reimbursement contract that's in place at the margin for the next incremental patient, their model does not allow them to pay whatever they need to pay to get the next patient in. It's very constrained. And so when I look across those, there are some, it's, it's kind of like that payer conversation we were having earlier, which is, well, yeah, they have a lot of incentive, but to a point, if there's a, a threshold that's been put in there in some way or another, that would limit sort of how much you could actually move. Um, so one of the movements that you would expect to see happen is, is, is there a way to maintain reimbursement at a skilled nursing facility, but actually push that all to the home if you could? Could you have the same number of people, but distributed now across a whole bunch of different homes because uh, you know families have become caregivers in some sense. Now, maybe some families feel like, well, if, if I'm going to be a caregiver, then you should actually pay me, and that's a reasonable that's a reasonable request or demand to be made. Um, those types of technology, though, that would allow that to actually happen, that's probably got a fair amount of leverage to it into the entire model. Is how do we pull that into the home? So then the second part of your question, which is, what would what would be necessary to do that? And that, I think, comes down to what are the types and classes of patients that we're actually talking about? Does every patient need to have, you know, 47 different alarms put onto them? Pro probably not. In fact, actually, most patients don't need any alarms that have been put onto them. Um, they need to do things like we need the patient to ambulate um, once they get home, but do it in a way that they don't fall. Um so what do we need to do now? Well, now we need to do things like tracking. There are, oh, I would say a set of technologies that would be super useful for most patients that are being discharged. Um, some of those technologies, you could either use things like accelerometers or cameras to actually look at that, which is, is the environment safe? Um, how much are they moving? What does their form look like when they're moving? Are they actually, you know, progressing from that perspective? 
relatively simple technology that can actually be deployed there to get a lot more scale in the process. There's another set of patients where actually um, they do require a lot more um, alerting and alarming that would go with them that, you know, tracking how their heart is performing right now matters, tracking their respiratory um, uh, vitals actually matters quite a bit. And, and with those patients, we just have to think a little bit differently, like what does that look like? There, there's plenty of technology around it today. It's just the technology that's there is not really that integrated um, and pulled together into a platform that people could actually use. But then again, stepping away from that, most patients don't need really aggressive monitoring when they go home. They need relatively simple monitoring, but they need stuff to happen on a regular basis. So we worked on a project years ago um, where we got uh, patients up and ambulating after uh, after surgery. Uh, and the goal was as quickly as possible after surgery. And we had all kinds of great outcomes that came out of it. And the institution, um, the facility there has institutionalized that. They happen to be an at-risk facility. And so they that's a good thing for them. Um, you know, but looking at what was necessary there and then what did they need to go home with, it was pretty minimal what they needed to go home with. But one of those things is, okay, we got them ambulating. We need to keep them ambulating. Um, if you're not tracking that, then you're going to come up short. And, and so I think the the technology that's needed, the systems the, that's needed to do that is actually relatively straightforward. It's the decisioning that goes with it that needs to be powered. So if the digital part means data that gets collected and now is used in a new way, um, that would be important. Um, one really quick example on it. Um, a good measurement is, you know, what does the, the stand up and go um, time look like for a patient? Meaning if I'm in a chair and I want to get up and start moving and walking forward, that's something that you can actually measure. You could do that with either a camera or an accelerometer, and you can actually get really good measurements on it to see, is my patient actually progressing? That That's not hard technology to put together. You know, you, you talk about like the the specific technologies needed. It, it sounds like you know that all of that generally exists. Probably what doesn't exist or is not well developed yet is sort of that infrastructure or sort of that software layer that can integrate all those devices to feed that data back to a facility, for example, or to a to the provider to to then be able to monitor and and make decisions on and and then be able to then push information back to the patient, right? Who's who's sitting at home. Um, yeah, it's, I think there, there are folks that are working on some of that. Um, but yeah, that needs to be improved. And I think the, there are two other areas that probably need to be improved for patients. One is around, you know, how is their mind doing? Um, and the other is how is their immune system actually responding? So are there, are there simple uh, blood tests that need to be done, for example, on a daily basis to understand, is the body coming back to where it's supposed to be? Um, and then the evaluation of what does their state of mind actually look like? Um, the, the good news is on, on that, there are a number of ways that folks have developed out uh, to do that through digital means. Um, not just a therapist checking in on a, on a televisit type thing, but, but actually, you know, there are cognitive tests that somebody can do to say, okay, how, how are you processing? Is that improving or not or degrading? 
so there, those two areas are actually, I think, pretty important to actually integrate in. And um, those are also probably the areas where, you know, using the term artificial intelligence very broadly, um, which includes things like expertise systems and stuff like that, to get down to, to go from AI to like the narrower sets where you're in like the machine learning space. Um, having cognitive screen tools would actually be probably essential across all patients that you send home. And those could probably be done a lot better with digital tools than with humans. You'd have consistency in the result. Uh, it's cheap to perform. It would allow you to target, you know, again, back to the progression, the progressive nature of disease rather than just a specific event or outcome. Yeah. So, so let me be, to kind of wrap this up then, you know, if we take everything that we've kind of discussed so far and particularly write this idea of a, a health 2.0 system, you know, how would you say we need to create the right feedback loops, right? Because, you know, we've talked about, you know, the patient's responsibility, uh, right? But they, you know, their incentives aren't necessarily, you know, they're not always thinking about their health. You know, we've talked about the payer, you know, and they have certain you know, certain thresholds where they have good incentives where they don't and then others where they don't. Um, same with the providers. How, how would you think that we'd want to create sort of the right feedback loops that we, we can create a, have a better model for, for care delivery that actually, you know, getting back to the beginning really addresses then the outcomes part uh, versus maybe the administrative part? Yeah, the um, if we want to get to the outcomes part, um, I think, I guess a few simple principles. One, the patient has to be uh, involved and aligned in the process. So we should think that some some of the dollars that are there and generated should be used with the patient directly in some way or another. Um, number two is even though there are some systemic things that can and maybe need to change um, in the system, for example, you know, what do maybe we should keep minimum loss ratios exactly like they are, but we can work within the system today to say, you know, delegate that risk or capitate that risk away to somebody else and actually just move it to a different part where the incentives can now get aligned again. Um, maybe, maybe the, the health plan gets some share of that savings that gets generated, but the, the provider actually uh, captures the lion's share and then some of it gets shared with the actual individual patient. I mean, I think there there is a there's a feedback loop in the outcome itself and the dollars that are there that needs to be closed in, in order to actually get the stuff that we're talking about. The rest of the feedback loop, though, needs to be technologies that allow us to attach uh, biological signals to the behaviors that we need to see happen in the process. Um, if we believe that you know immune system performance is critical in different chronic diseases, for example, then we need to have the diagnostic testing that actually takes place um, and feeds that forward into the system. So not just back to say, hey, this happened, but actually feeding it forward to say, if we move this and we move this particular behavior that's associated with this, we'll get better performance in this patient. You know, I think we need to evaluate what are the disease states that we think really need to have that happen in and then actually look at what are the signals that are actually needed there to do just that. And, and I would submit that I don't think we have a shortage of signals. I, I don't think we've organized them and used them in a way that allows us to provision care the way it needs to be for 
for areas that we're trying to really intercept that disease progression that's taking place. So that certainly sounds like a, a lot of work, a lot of work ahead for everyone, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's why we're not doing it right now, Charles. Like somebody else needs to do all that work. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, hey, Ken, uh, you know, really appreciated it. Uh, this was really fascinating, and, uh, and hopefully, people find it uh, very. Uh, very thought-provoking here. Um, so, you know, hey, so just want to wrap it up and just thank you for joining us here today on this podcast and uh, and uh, certainly hope, uh, thank everyone for tuning in and uh, look forward to everyone joining us on a future uh, podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.